Hello everyone, this is Josh Carr with Real Angle, and today we are talking to uh, Joseph Willett. Um, Joe, how are you doing today? I'm good. Good. I didn't know your podcast had a name now. It does. No, I named it. I named it. Somewhere around episode three or four, I built a fancy logo and I gave it a name and it's all it's all professional and stuff. I don't know. It's, wow. uh, yeah, getting yeah, jittery here. I know, I know. Well, you know, I did use AI to generate the logo, though. So uh, still, either that's very high tech or I'm just too cheap to pay someone. But I, I guess it gets us to the same place. Um, anyway, so I always like to start with the basics, which is uh, your standard communities, your chief operating officer, correct? That's right. Great. And because everyone always asks me, uh, if you're curious in the web address, it's standard-communities.com. I always like to get that out there because invariably the first thing everyone does is just go to the internet. Um, so how long have you been at Standard? Seven years. Cool. And what were you, were you always chief operating officer or did you have a different job function or? Uh, I had a different job function uh, about uh, six years ago, I guess. This is my second stint at Standard. Um, now I'm chief operating officer, but uh, before that I was uh, a deal partner was our original kind of regional deal partner over here. And I'm a long time uh, kind of deal junkie. Spent, uh, I guess I've bought, sold, redeveloped uh, over 15,000 apartments across the country between, you know, my different stops along the way. So uh, been a lot uh, involved in a lot of transactions over the years. That's a lot of product. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how have you found the transition from being a deal guy to being more of a C-level type position? That's a great question. You know, it was definitely uh, a struggle for me originally. Um, when I stepped away from the business, the deal side of the business about uh, five years ago, you know, my intention at that point was really to try to transition from a, a human doing into a human being because so much of my life was built around transactions. So many of my relationships were built around transactions. Um, and I had a productive two plus years doing that. But, you know, it's ironic. It's kind of like riding a bike. When I came back to Standard in this new capacity, this new role, uh, role my immediate reaction, because so, so much of my identity and, and worth internally for a long time had been tied up around doing deals, making sure. deals happen. Sure. I immediately tried to insert myself in, uh, in every area around deal making I could just to kind of feel more um, maybe justified or safe in my existence. And, sure, and luckily sure. we've got two, two great founders over here that uh, protected me from myself and quickly kind of pulled me out of that as, as fast as they could, because we had so many other important things to, to focus on as an organization, given our growth trajectory. So um, now I think I've, I've really settled in the role probably in the last call it 18 months. And um, you know, it's, uh, it's different for sure. You know, I'm, Sure. Definitely uh, on external calls and in external meetings a lot less, and it's much more internal work for me. Sure, uh, and supporting the team and thinking through kind of um, our workflow and our strategic um, moves around uh, heading into different markets or opening up different business units. Um, but I enjoy it. I really love building things. I'm a builder at heart. Um, you know, I've been put on uh, probation multiple times at home from my family because. Uh, you know, I'll build a new home and then I'll spend the next, you know, two years 
doing renovations and additions to it. And they'll be like, come on, you know, what's the story here? We just built this house. Why are you right. still making improvements to it? We're done. Just, We're done. Yeah. Sure. Just enjoy just, the house. I just don't know how to stop growing, developing and building. And so um, it's really this role, I think, has been a good fit for me in that capacity. No, it, that's it, it's uh, it's interesting hearing you say all of this because that that transition from being a, a deal guy to being C level type role, um, what you've described there, I've heard that multiple times throughout my career that that's a major transition and it's a different way of thinking about things. It's not thinking about the deal; it's thinking about the organization, and that's just a different process and a different part of the brain and. Um, and some people don't like it. Some people don't want to make that transition. And they're just like, hey, I like doing deals and I'm done, you know, and that's just you got to ask yourself what role you want to be in. So you did mention markets and you mentioned that you were a partner. Uh, you were a, a market partner. You were in one market. Um, so how many markets are you? The company is in today. I mangled that sentence. But how many markets? Are no, you? I got you. I got you. Um, we're in 16 or 17 states, I, I want to say right now, uh, plus the District of Columbia. Okay. Uh, and and based on con, where our uh, current pipeline is, we would be in north of you know twenty states, um, you know by this time next year. So we're pretty spread out around the country. We have um, kind of four core offices. I'm here in Washington D.C. with about twenty people. One of the two co-founders is in New York with about fifteen people, and then the other co-founder is in L.A. with our largest office, which is around thirty people. And then we also have a uh, significant office and presence in Chicago and Orange County, California as well. Now, is there much from a from a deploying capital, from looking at deals from a growth standpoint, are you like, how do you think about it? Is each mark, each office is kind of running and doing the best deal they can do in their market? Or are you more saying, hey, we're really loving the Northeast, so we're going to try to allocate more capital towards the Northeast? Like, what's the because you're sitting in more of a strategic role. So how, how are you thinking about it, I guess? Yeah. So when we first started, we definitely were more in kind of the traditional merchant developer, Trammel Crow type of model where we were thinking about things regionally. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, I was the first kind of regional development partner we, we ever um, had and we expanded from there. And then ultimately when I left, I think... Um, we had to kind of rethink our business and we began to kind of centralize things at that point. Plus we were pretty well established at that point. And as much as we like any other buyer want to buy every deal off market, we really actually value and respect the brokerage community. Um, and so we've, we've established some really deep relationships in the brokerage community and we see most deals now, regardless of where we sit, that makes sense for us based upon that. And so no, now we're, we're essentially handling um, you know, we have three core business units, if we will, if you will. We have a, a Litech Act Redev unit. We have a, a Litech New Construction unit, and we also have an essential housing, which is a, a workforce housing investment management platform. And each one of the leaders of those groups actually sit in different offices, but cover the entire country. And I was going to ask about that because I, I did look at your website before we got on the line here, of, of course. When you talk about essential housing and workforce, so that's market rate stuff. You're not using low-income housing tax credit money, but you may be using – there might be an affordable housing component possibly. Like what 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 does that mean to you when you say essential housing? Yeah, I mean it can be a hodgepodge of things. Um, really, we think about it as an investment management platform. Historically, we haven't – we hadn't been in the investment management business. We had focused on using our own capital or, you know, kind of pass the hat, you know, friends and family money sure. when we needed capital. 
Um, but we were pretty much self-funded. Uh, and then in the last, call it three years, just because of our scale and, and our reputation, um, you know, we've raised a, a CRA fund and now a, a GP co-investment fund. And so it's really focused on deals that we can't um, bring uh, the traditional affordable housing subsidies like low-income housing tax credits and and um, project-based Section 8 and tax exemptions to and, and get creative. I mean, there's no dedicated, unfortunately, there's no, really no dedicated resources out there to kind of serve that 80% to 100% AMI sweet spot, the workforce housing. Sure. And so um, we've been able to get creative with both kind of our public-private partnerships and our investor relationships to find some opportunities to to do some things that uh, um, you know normally wouldn't hit one of our sweet spots. But in that portfolio, we have a hodgepodge of things. We do have actually some Section Eight properties that just don't make sense to resyndicate uh, with tax credits based upon you know kind of land bases and location and things like that. Sure. Um, and then we also yeah. right, and then we've also um, you know purchased GP interests and in existing portfolios. Um, with the eye to maybe down the the road, um, buying out partners and potentially looking at resyndicating those deals with tax credits, um, and we've done other creative things. It's it's really uh, it's a creative vehicle for us that's been growing like crazy, um, and um, we think there's no shortage of opportunity in that workforce housing space for groups like ours that are are really um, well healed from a from a capital standpoint and and are super creative uh, in kind of the things that we bring to the table. So I guess I have two follow-up questions on that. One is you mentioned CRA, that's Community Reinvestment Act. So those investors would be banks because they're the ones who care about CRA. Um, what other kind of institutions are you working with? Pension funds, life goes, like where is this money generally coming from? No, I mean, we don't really do a ton of business um, with those groups. It's, you know, we do a lot of business with the banks. You know, banks okay. typically are... Um, low-income housing tax credit investors as well, again, because of CRA needs. Sure. And then most of our, on the debt side, most of what we're doing is with Fannie and Freddie. We do a little bit with FHA, but, you know, we try to, um, you know, there's speed of execution, pricing, you know, recourse. There's just so many benefits to, to working with the government-sponsored uh, Fannie and Freddie. Enterprises, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one one side benefit, which I'm sure you're aware of in today's market, is just that so many, at least in my market, the Northeast, so many traditional commercial banks, it seems just basically said, we're done. Like, I mean, a lot of them have pulled out of the market and slowed down. So the fact that you're doing Fannie and Freddie, um, that's good because in a lot of markets, they're the only game in town right now. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting how many commercial banks have decided that they want to. Uh, not be in commercial real estate lending until they figure out what the heck is going on. Um, they figure out so, what to do with their office portfolios. Yeah, no, exactly. Office portfolios and a lot of other stuff that blew up. Yeah, no, it definitely. It's uh, it's a uh, it's an interesting market. So okay, so I get a sense for you know it's a mix of funding, right? You've got some self-funded stuff. You've got some you know past the hat, so to speak. So high net worth stuff. The investment management platform is a very natural outgrowth. Um, Again, that kind of makes sense in like the life cycle of a business of yours. Um, I'm curious just because you mentioned a bunch of different markets. I mean, one thing I've been watching over the last few years is it feels like a lot of people have all decided at the same time that rent control is a good idea again. And I think we as a nation have seen that rent control was really big in the 70s. And then somewhere by the 90s, people are like, hey, this isn't really serving the 
public policy goals we thought it was going to achieve. And then everyone's like, that's bad. And now it seems like we've rediscovered brand control again. Um, is that an issue in the markets you're operating in? Like what, where are you seeing the, the pendulum swinging, if you will? Yeah, it's not a huge issue for us because, you know, 90, call it, uh, two, 3% of our business is, uh, restricted affordable housing already. So we're already dealing with rent restrictions. Sure. Um, it's interesting to watch that, um, happen, right. Um, there's any number of studies out there that have shown kind of it's bad public policy, right? Um, but I think it's just really an outcry from a lot of these jurisdictions who are feeling, you know, maybe trapped a little bit in a corner. Like sure. the, the demand for uh, affordable workforce housing has just continued to explode year after year. And there's limited resources, right? Uh, you know, the worst kept secret in real estate, right? With affordable market rate, it costs the same to build it, if not more. You know, it costs the same to operate, if not more. The only thing that's different is the rents are a lot lower. So you've got to plug that gap somehow. Sure. And so, you know, uh, unless you're, you know, a major metropolitan area that's collecting, you know, housing trust fund dollars from transfer taxes on every real estate transaction, a lot of these jurisdictions around the country just don't have the means to um, kind of plug that gap. And so I think a lot of them are reacting to this idea, hey, you know, we need to help our constituents um by by controlling rents and that's gonna that's gonna work out for us in the long run and i think study after study has shown right when you uh, disincentivize owners and developers from investing in their their properties which i think at the end of the day investors are looking for a return on their capital right of course. and so they need to see rent growth or noi growth and when you disincentivize to do them you know uh you either I mean, you see a slowdown in investment in real estate. And over time, right, that real estate becomes less and less valuable because of that dynamic. Right. So deferred maintenance piles up. No, it's interesting. I've had some conversations with some politicians over the years who are politically relatively left of center, and they may on one hand publicly say that they're doing rent control. But then when you just talk to them one on one, the conversation rapidly turns to some variation of, hey, we're not saying this is actually a good idea. It's just simply this is the best idea we have. You know, like we're we're working with a stressed out system. So, you know, we're, we're doing what we can. Um, no, it's interesting. I mean, look, I have a bias. I'm a New York native and New York City has been king of rent control for decades. Uh, so it's something that probably I'm more attuned to. But your point about how since so much of your stuff is income restricted, your income, I mean, or sort of rent restricted, you're rent restricted anyway, so it, it's kind of a non-issue. So one question I always like to ask people, and I realize you're not in the weeds as much necessarily, but still like to ask it. So like, what's the secret sauce? By that I mean, you look at a deal, a bunch of other players look at a deal. If you win the deal, by definition, you paid more than the other guy, generally, right? Or you gave better terms. So like, what what works for standard communities that doesn't work for other entities? Like what's, what rings your bell, so to speak, as a firm? Um, I mean, when you ask me that question, a couple of things come to mind, you know, the old adage that time kills all deals. So what we're really good at over here is, is moving fast. Um, we really pride ourselves and, and understanding transaction timelines, communicating those timelines to the stakeholders outside, and then meeting those timelines. And that's won us a lot of grace and favor and um, reputational um, 
brand, if you will, from brokers and sellers and government agencies. And I think our ability to do that really comes down to um, kind of a core value that exists over here is is, is sweating the details. Um, we are, you know, I think by nature, doing real estate deals, right? You have to be a problem solver because um, there's always, you know, there's always a million reasons not to do a deal, right? Um, you just need to find those handful of reasons that make sense and you need to protect them and diligence them. And so, and you're going to have to firefight because something's going to come up. Your appraisal didn't come back where you needed it, or your investor dropped out last minute, or, you know, the, the management company won't do the deal at that fee, whatever it is, something's going to sure. come up. And sure. so you're constantly problem solving. And I think wh while why we are one of the most effective problem solvers in the affordable housing space is because we're so focused on the details. Like um, that's really something that we look for in people. Um, because at the end of the day, the more you understand the details at every level, the better you're going to be at brainstorming potential solutions that can can move things, you know, from from point A to point Z. And I believe there's always a solution. It may not be the solution that feels the best to you or to someone, but there's always solutions to be had. And, and we generally find with our our financial partners and our construction partners, we can always kind of find common ground with them eventually. I think everybody's motivated to to move the deal forward and get it done. And so just by understanding like their business models, what their motivations are, what their timelines are, it really helps us kind of find solutions that work well for everyone. Well, and I imagine one of the benefits here is that since you're not that your deals are cookie cutter per se, but since you're doing a lot of the same thing again and again and again and again, you, you start to figure out the right ways to handle those crises as they happen. And, and your comment about making brokers having done a little bit of brokerage in my career early on, the fact that you're dealing with a buyer who actually will get to the finish line is huge, especially in today's market when just everything's, a lot of stuff has fallen down at the last minute. So that that's well put. It's well put. It's interesting. So to, so to flip it around a little bit, you know, there are unexpected things that happen in deals. Um, any fun ones? I always enjoy asking people this, like any, any, any really weird, unexpected things you've had come up on a deal? And I'm just curious. Oh, I mean, lots. You know, I can think of a ton of different environmental issues that popped up that we could have never anticipated in deals. Um, you know, coming out of COVID, I think one of the biggest challenges that we're still still trying to get through is um, the different jurisdictions around the country that put in eviction moratoriums in place. Mm -hmm. And then allowed them to um, go on, you know, for extended period of times. And they kind of reset their courts to do a lot of um, virtual processing right. and haven't gone back to the in-person investment. You know, it's it's you know, we've got certain deals in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. that are running, you know, 20 percent delinquency that you never can underwrite in a model and make sense of. Right. I mean, we underwrote those deals that whatever, 3% delinquency and getting the jurisdictions to understand that, Hey, this is just not sustainable. Like, sure. you know, you know, we had, we had a situation in one of those markets where um, ERAP funds became available again, those are the emergency rental assistance program funds. And as soon as folks heard that those were available again, residents of ours or residents of our property management company, they elected to stop paying rent again because they were like, well, I'm going to, you know, the government's going to pay. So yeah. why should I pay you? Yeah. Sure. And if I don't, then, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm back 
kind of where I was at type of thing. And right. explaining that to politicians, like, hey, look at this fact pattern, look at what you've created. Like, this is not sustainable. It's not good for the people that are doing the right thing at the communities, right? That are paying the rent, they're being good homeowners and, and, and residents. And that's really what we've been trying to uh, inform these jurisdictions. It's like, look at the impact you're having on the good people who are doing the right thing. Because- right. We're good owners. We're going to continue to fund our deals and make sure, you know, we execute on our business plans as promised to our partners. But like you're going to have plenty of other bad actors out there that aren't as well capitalized as us that are going to put their hands up and just say, hey, look, this is not sustainable. What do, you, what do you want to do? Right. And then they won't pay property taxes. And then the city will have to take the property back. And then the city is going to be stuck with a building with a bunch of people are not paying and that doesn't really help anybody you know it, yeah. it is it is amusing to me that when they assess you for property taxes if you have a situation like covid at least in most jurisdictions i've seen it's not like they lower your property taxes they just say well it's temporary you're you should just keep paying your full taxes and it's like but i can't pay my full taxes if i'm not collecting the rent it's just math yeah, yeah. no it's it's uh it's been it's been very interesting. Uh, the COVID scenario for me, and I think for you too, I mean, if anyone if anyone had said to me, I feel like a lot of what happened during COVID is like my undergrad was an econ, and it feels like someone in my sophomore year in college, it would be like a professor's thought experiment. Like, hey, students, if the following crazy things happened, what do you think that would do to the economy? And then you'd sit there at 19 or 20 in class thinking to yourself, well, this is a stupid question. This would never happen. Like, this is just something a, a prof comes up with, and, and here we are. So now that's that's interesting to hear you say that I, I've heard that echoed from other markets. So it's uh, it's good to know I'm not alone in in hearing that. Speaking of the broader economy. So interest rates have gone, for lack of a better word, I don't want to say crazy, but they've gone up quite a bit. Um, how's that affecting you guys? It's making doing deals definitely more challenging. Um, you know, we're pretty risk averse in terms of you know, thinking about how we structure deals, you know, again, speed. One of the reasons that we move fast as well is so we take a lot of the interest rate risk off the table. We historically haven't been a group that likes to to bridge deals with with floating rate debt for that reason. Um, so, you know, we we have some exposure, not a ton exposure, and we're aggressively working through that exposure right now to to make sure that, you know, it doesn't become a problem. But I think we kind of see interest rates pr staying pretty flat from where they are today for the next two years. Um, and you know, it's kind of like coming out of the great recession for any of us that have seen multiple cycles, right. I, you know, one of my mentors at the time, you know, told me, okay, we just came out of this period of time where everybody was making money with a hatchet. And now we're going to move into this time where it's going to be about working with a scalpel. And so, you know, we're, I think we're focused like a lot of people right now about, you know, how can we get more efficient at what we do? Um, you know, not only executing deals, but also operating deals, you know, really thinking about technology. I mean, AI is on everybody's mind, right? And so, you know, how is AI going to come into the property management space and and potentially change uh, the dynamics there to help people, you know, get more data at their fingertips faster to make um, the right decisions? And so we're opportunistic. You know, we are, again, well-heeled and we think, um, you know, there's going to be some distress that cycles through uh, in the next two years. Because obviously, you know, there's a ton of deals on floating rate that uh, are worth 30 to 40% less today than they were when, um, um, you know, they were closed. 
And right. so those deals are going to have to be recapped. And I think we're sitting in a, in a really nice position to, to be a, a group that you know many brokers or, or lenders come to and say, hey, we've got this problem. Will you fix it? Again, because of, of where we are now in our growth cycles and organization and also, you know, the track record and reputation that we've built and then, you know, the financial resources that we have behind us. No, and that's all huge. That's all huge. No, and that was going to lead me to the question of plans for the next 12 to 24 months. It definitely sounds like you're the mindset of, you know, there's going to be a major uh, retrenchment, if you will. And so be positioned to take advantage of that in 24, 25 and see where you go. Um, at least the challenge I've seen is, you know, uh, figuring out when that bottom is per se, right? You know, it's, yeah. it becomes a timing conversation uh, and you don't want to, it always reminds me of the old joke about the, uh, the economist who doesn't pick up the $20 bill because he says, well, if there was actually a $20 bill there, someone would have already picked it up. Like, yeah. you know, so, sometimes markets, uh, you know, the markets can sometimes be irrational. So it's, it's, it's tricky finding the right timing. Anyway, uh, last question, just, and I think this is something I wanted to ask you just because you're in a management role. Um, so you've got these different markets, these different teams. Like, how do you balance from a management standpoint the fact that they're running, they are running independently, right? I mean, they're looking at deals and stuff. Like, how's the, how do you manage that? Because if you've got four different markets, four different offices with four different team leaders, if you will, what is that like managing that process? I mean, I guess this gets to hard what your job is. I'm just trying to understand how do you, how do you manage these different teams? Do you benchmark? Them uh, I would each love other? to say I, have all, I would love to say I have all the answers to that. I, it, it's it's been one of it's been kind of my primary focus since coming back in my my new role, and it's been a challenge for us. I think the way it's a challenge for most small entrepreneurial shops that that grow and become you know significant and not small, sure. Yeah, not small. I mean, when I when I started with Standard, it was there was ten of us, and now there's ninety of us, and we don't properly manage. So that gives you a, kind of a, a indication of like how many people we have and how much work that we have going on. Um. So I mean, I can tell you the things that we've we've focused on is we've really kind of turned our attention um, on a couple of different fronts. Traditionally, right, the great executors become managers and leaders whether or not they want to be managers and leaders at, at all. And so we've had to really force our, our leaders and our important managers to slow down and to spend more time thinking about investing and developing their teams. You know, how can, how can they, um, how can two people create more than one type of thing? And so some of that is doing that scary thing of letting go of control a little bit um, because I think anybody who's been successful in any type of business you know, control is a huge thing, right? You're trying to drive outcomes. And, you know, we have a core group of people that have been with us for a long time, and they're still very much essential to the work that we're doing. And that's not sustainable going forward at 90 people, right? So we really need to figure out how to get more out of, you know, that, that larger group. And part of that is investing in training and development and letting them do things and make mistakes, just making sure those mistakes don't become problems, right? Sure. They're, uh, they're controllable mistakes. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, that's a big thing we focused on developing true leaders and, and managers through our ranks. Um, you know, and, and the other thing is is really about communications, communication and transparency. I think that's the biggest thing that, uh, you know, I've seen from kind of our rank and file team members is 
they want to know more. They feel disconnected from the business. The larger you get, the more spread out, the more kind of specialized functions get. And people, you know, when you're small, everybody's involved in everything, right? And so it's not, you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about how you're communicating because everybody's in the in the details and the weeds. And as we've grown, everything's gotten more spread out. And then you, you know, through COVID, we had, you know, virtual work. And yeah, even now we're, we're back in the office, but again, we're still in these these five offices across the country with, you know, team members on the same team in LA and, and New York. So, you know, it's just how do you effectively communicate what's going on within an organization and provide the level of transparency that people want. I mean, one of the biggest lessons I've learned through this process is around transparency, that people want transparency, but they really want transparency around good and neutral news. Um, When you give them too much transparency around things that could be um, viewed as bad news, even if it's not bad news, um, you actually create this interesting dynamic that has you solving more communication needs so it's a it's i don't know i'll stop there it sounds like no you... no it's no it's an excellent point i mean you end up straight i mean yeah if you give people negative news that they don't necessarily have the ability to fix because it's not their job function or because it's just not something they can fix like interest rates go up um they get stressed out and then you're upsetting them about things and then they feel powerless because they can't fix bad things so, you know, at the same time, you don't want to just live in some magical world where you only give people good information because then you're just basically lying. To, I mean, yeah, like that's not healthy either. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. It is an interesting question about what does transparency mean and, and what do we give you to keep you effectively motivated? Um, and and your other point about different offices it's a great point. I mean, it's not like you can all go out for a drink after work. You're physically in different cities. So there's a, there's a limit to that. Yeah, it's the uh, that's the one thing I think we've lost a lot in the virtual world. The work from home world is the uh, the soft connections, the dotted line connections, not just interacting with people who are your direct reports, but sort of like, hey, you're not my direct report. We're at the same company, but we get beer every Thursday. That matters. That that's that social fabric, if you will. So. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. the the water cooler talk got got a bad rap for a long time, right? And as as a person who's had the luxury of of working remotely as a deal guy for a long time, um, and then also working in offices and and like experiencing both of them for extended period of times, the the energy that you get when you're working in close proximity, physical proximity to people who are focused on and motivated by the same things, like it just everybody spurs the other person and that cannot be replicated through you know a virtual work and i think the the real people that need to understand that and get that and we're trying to help um realize that are is the younger generation the generation just now coming into the space mm-hmm. who haven't experienced that before and and like hey i can be super efficient on my computer at home um and get things done but what you're missing is you're missing watching how that senior manager or leader or that deal guy talks to people on the phone or conducts a meeting or does a silly thing like the route that they take the lender or the investor to see the property, right? Sure, sure, like sure, Just sure. like the art of doing things versus like the textbook, you know, A to Z, like uh, much of what we do, right, is is more art than it's science, at least the people that do it well. The science is the foundation, but it's it's kind of how you paint the canvas, and all of those things, like I just look back on my own career, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of get handpicked by a CFO at a place that I worked for a couple of years, like within 
six months on the job to like be their right-hand person. And I was in so many meetings that I had no business being in. But the amount of learning that I did in that three-year span, you know, I wish I could replicate it again. It's huge. It was, a, it's it was amazing. It's and so I think that's the piece that, you know, we're trying to help the younger folks that we're hiring here really understand and, and like, just be that fly on the wall and, and be around because, you know, things just rub off on you from the presence. No, and, and also if you want to be successful in an organization, those, the, the social connections with people and other job functions are very helpful. I mean, you know, you want to get a check cut to a vendor if you're friends with Phyllis in accounting, you can get the check cut, you know, whereas if you're not, then guess what? You're in the queue of everybody else. There's a lot to be said for just those, the inform the, the informal horse trading that goes on in any organization to get anything done because otherwise nothing, whatever it just, that that's just running an organization. No, it's, it's tricky stuff. And I think your point about generational differences, uh, sadly, I think is going to, prove true. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's into demographics a lot, and he was pointing out the obvious of, well, if everyone just works from home and they're not meeting and they're not socializing, what does this do to household formation, you know, 10, 15 years down the road? I mean, you know, you end up, I mean, at the risk of, you know, stating the obvious, if you don't socialize, you might not meet anyone and, you know, dot, 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 no marriage, no kids, you know, it, it could have longer term social impacts which we will unfortunately not see until, you know, 10 years from now, you got to have that, that, that stuff going on. So yeah. anyway, well, good. Well, look, this has been very constructive. It's good to talk to you about the, uh, the growth of your firm and also talk a little bit about management stuff. Um, any closing thoughts or anything else on your mind? Uh, I would just encourage anybody who's listening to this, that's interested in affordable housing uh, to reach out to me. Uh, we're one of the top 20 owners, developers of affordable housing in the country. And, uh, you know, we like to think uh, we're the best at it. And uh, whether it's opportunities to partner or employment opportunities, you know, we're always looking for, uh, you know, an opportunity to to do a good investment. And we're also always looking for the best and the brightest to come work for us. Um, we truly kind of want to be, you know, uh, the trammel crow, if you will, of the affordable housing space or the black rock, like kind of, kind of be that name that people think about when they think of, of affordable housing and that, that, that place that spawns all the principals and partners off on all these new ventures. Like they came through the, the training grounds, if you will, the training which, was ground. standard, which was standard communities. Right. You're, yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, you're, uh, you're definitely, you're there definitely bigger than I think your social profile may suggest, if you will, uh, in terms of name recognition, you're, you're much larger. You're not much larger in scope than a lot of other firms who might be better known. So it's, it's, it's always interesting to talk about this. Well, good. Well, then I will say thank you. And for everyone listening, uh, we'll be back again in a week. Uh, and I guess what I always like to say to people is if you haven't subscribed, please do. And if you know someone who might be a good guest for the podcast, uh, you know where to reach me. Just check out the website, send me an email. Uh, thanks again, Joe, and um, best of luck. Thanks, Josh.